1: In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Couquier, the data editor, and I'm talking today with Karen Preet-Baya, one of our science writers. Hello, Karen Preet. Hi, Ken. And to Miranda Johnson, our environment correspondent. Hello, Miranda. Hello. Hello. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Super Stonehenge, massive stone monoliths that have recently been discovered near the ancient site of Stonehenge in Britain. And we'll talk about the sexy world of seed banks, one of the most important ways we can seduce prudish plants to go forth and multiply. First, we'll start with you, Karen Free. What exactly have the researchers found near Stonehenge?
2: These researchers have been surveying the entire area around the Stonehenge site, and they found something interesting around what's known as a superhenge at a site called Durrington Walls. And this is just three kilometers away from the nice, famous Stonehenge site, which we all know about. And they found roughly at least 90 stones here, which they found relics of, but perhaps up to 200 uh, from imprints and foundation pits that they found on the ground.
1: So how big an area are we talking here? The whole Superhenge
2: site has a diameter of 500 meters. So we're talking about a mile-long round trip if you were going to go around.
1: Wow. So in other words, very huge. It's an enormous site, yeah. Okay. And how did we find it?
2: They managed to survey it using two different types of methods. So the first had been tried before, and this is called magnetometry. So what they did was they scanned the entire site and looked for any magnetic anomalies which might be caused by, say, different types of soil which have, been, which have had their properties changed by heating and fires. Um, and this actually didn't work and hasn't worked in the past because the stones were buried around a metre beneath the surface at the bank around the perimeter of this henge.
1: So in other words, the stones are actually not visible from land, You have to it's actually under the ground.
2: No, you couldn't see it, and because they haven't been able to do excavations of the site beforehand, they've only been able to try to find it by remote methods. The magnetometry method, which they tried first, didn't actually work out, and it's the second method which really struck gold this time. So what they did was they used radar scanning to see if any objects were reflecting the signals back up, and using this, they managed to find all the stones.
0: I was wondering, um, Miranda here, this Stonehenge is a a world-famous site. I think Obama visited it a couple of years ago. Have excavations happened before near the site of Stonehenge and they didn't uncover anything? Or is this a new technology that's being used and so now we are finding things that we didn't previously know about? So excavations have been
2: carried out, but they've generally been focused around monuments that are already known to exist, so around the famous Stonehenge site itself. The surrounding area, we're talking about, you know, quite an enormous space, a number of square miles. And so it simply hasn't been possible to excavate the entire place. Um, their research simply wouldn't know where to look. Uh, if we look at what they've actually done in particular on this occasion, they've managed to spend three days driving around with their little radio antennas in tow behind their mini tractors. And they've managed to survey an entire area 15 hectares. And it's actually just in one part of this, the Durrington Walls area, where they've really struck gold and found these stones in one place.
1: So let me step back a second. What is a henge? And do we actually know what the site was used for?
2: The word henge actually just comes originally from the Stonehenge site. But what it's come to now mean is any roughly flat circular area, which is at the center of a Neolithic earthwork. So what you end up with is a bank around the perimeter surrounded by a ditch. And these have been used for seemingly ritualistic purposes by the Neolithic people.
1: And tell me about, a little bit about these rituals that would go on. There was some astrological significance to them.
2: The Stonehenge site itself is very famous because it aligns on the solstices with the sun. So you have the sunrise during the summer solstice, sunset in the winter solstice. And this is when you'll get all the modern druids and revelers turning up to the site. Beyond that, it's quite speculative what they might have lined up with in the past and how far these astronomical links go.
1: Miranda, you're militating to walk in on this. Uh,
0: yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm I'm very excited by this. The uh, Druids? Yeah. Got you interested? <laughs> <By> the, yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm very keen to become one. No, um, I, I'm just very interested by this whole discovery. I'm a, I'm a big Tess of the Durbervilles fan. But I, I wondered what might happen next, Gambri. Do we know whether things will be excavated? Will a new visitor's site suddenly spring up? I mean, what are the next steps?
1: Yeah, will we, will we have a new movie like Spinal Tap in which it'll descend down at a <laughs> site size? Well, it might have to descend down, yeah, to this site a little bit
2: further out from the main one. But um, yes, yeah, it's, it's very important actually that this scan can now direct further excavations. So before, as we're saying, because it's quite a spread out large site, they wouldn't have known exactly where to look. They can now focus specifically where they've located these stones. And one would also hope that If new roadworks and things are to be constructed in the area, then they won't be tearing through any of these ancient monuments which have existed hidden under the ground.
1: So do you expect this technology to be going anywhere else? I mean, are we going to bring it to islands off of Greece, uh, the mainland, to look for ruins that we didn't know about from other eras?
2: This can certainly be employed in other places now. Uh, What you tend to find of archaeology is that the construction of a survey, the way in which it's designed, is absolutely key to being able to find anything. And in this particular case, what's been special is that the technology has been really miniaturised in recent years. So in the past, they would have been using quite a bulky radar system, say, to actually manually check each point, plot it on a map, work out where everything is. What others can now do is take on similarly small technology, bring it onto the back of their tractor and have it in tow and cover huge amounts of area in a very small period of time. And using GPS technology now, this can obviously be mapped automatically onto map the system so your data points can be put in place without having to go through too much effort. And this basically means in places like Greece say that you can much more efficiently be able to locate anything of interest.
1: That's really interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Miranda let's turn to you now. Seed banks, tell us what's happening.
0: Back in the 1970s and 1980s, in the aftermath of the Green Revolution, a lot of seed banks were constructed around the world. There are now slightly over 1,700 of them. And essentially, these store frozen and dehydrated seeds that botanists can then use to try and identify genes resistant to things like drought or particular pests. This is useful because it means that you can cross them with commonly cultivated crops to make crops that are resistant to these things. But increasingly, seed banks are important because in the light of climate change, crops may well need such genes more often. Problem is people have forgotten about them seemingly and more money is needed for them and for the research that's conducted at them.
1: I presume there's nothing objectionable about seed banks. It's just simply a question of resources.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Question of resources and question of positions for botanists, to be honest, because the thing about seed banks is you can't just uh, sort of lock up and leave the seeds. They need to be taken out. They need to be propagated to ensure that sunlight and water ensure germination still. Seed banks require continued funding. You, You can't just sort of forget about them.
1: Great. So why should the state be responsible for doing this and not other organizations?
0: So uh, big biotechnology firms, uh, for example, don't particularly have an interest in doing this because they have uh, smaller gene banks with a narrow focus on commercial crops and tie-ups between those commercial crops and herbicides. So they can't be relied upon to ensure biodiversity on the scale that we need it. I want to just pull this back a little bit, actually, and ask why it is that these seed
2: banks are going to become increasingly important now with climate change
0: yeah so with warming temperatures, it's likely with atmospheric changes that are going to occur as a result, we're going to see change precipitation patterns. Dry places are likely to get drier, climate change may see uh, more frequent droughts in North America, for example, um, and wet places may likely get wetter. Uh, the Asian monsoon, for example, rains may intensify, so we need to have commercial crops that can withstand these and properties that will help them to do so may be found within the genes of plants that are being stored as seeds in seed banks.
1: That's brilliant. Do you need seed banks on every continent because plants are so different on the continents and the, and the features of those continents, climates are so different?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's one of these things where duplication isn't exactly a problem. It's the point, local knowledge, local varieties, the more seeds, the better. And also occasionally things go wrong at seed banks. Um, In Iraq and Afghanistan, seed banks have been almost destroyed because of conflicts there. Um, One was burnt down in the Philippines a couple of years ago. So hedge your bets, have more seed banks.
1: And is there anything else that we can do to help this issue further than just seed banks or is that just the most important primary start?
0: Well, interestingly, farming is now more efficient than ever before but small scale farmers who grow local crop varieties in all sorts of places in the world, but you know maybe only farm a few acres, are likely to be growing crops that are suited to their local environment. They're not things that are suited to mass commercial production. And so actually, in that process they help preserve biodiversity and those kind of small farmers should be encouraged you know we shouldn't try and make everything mass scale in terms of food production
1: yeah very interesting you create another single point of failure yeah you do. so you sort of need like the internet of seeds insofar as you need diversity uh, and an ecology
0: absolutely you know, uh, And innovation the, around the edges yeah mo- um, the more the merrier it's a case of we won't Quite know what we lose when biodiversity declines because you don't know what kind of genes you're going to need later until the need specifically arises.
1: Great. Miranda, thank you very much. No problem. Karen Preet, thank you. Thank you, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, please go to economist.com in London. This is The Economist.
2: The Economist.